As Crew Dragon triumphs, we enjoy planetary adventures with Lou Friedman, this week on Planetary Radio. There it is, this, the first view from the WB-57 airplane. We have that comm back with Bob and Doug. Visual, two drogues out. Splashdown. As you can see on your screen, we have visual confirmation for Splashdown. SpaceX copies and concurs. We see Splashdown and mains cut. Dragon Endeavor has returned home. NASA astronauts and Bob Endeavor and Doug. On behalf of the SpaceX and NASA teams, welcome back to planet Earth and thanks for flying SpaceX. <laughs> the splashdown of Crew Dragon Endeavor marking the end of Demo Mission 2 and the return of astronauts Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley from the International Space Station. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I was one of the millions who watched, worried, and celebrated on Sunday, August 2nd. So was Garrett Reisman. The astronaut and former SpaceX Director of Space Operations is back with an inside view of this success then I've got another treat for you. The founding executive director of the Planetary Society, Louis Friedman, has collected some of his best stories in a new book, Planetary Adventures, and he'll share several with us. All that and Bruce Betts? But wait, there's more. Specifically, a look at the most recent edition of The Downlink, the great weekly newsletter from the Planetary Society. Headlines in a moment, but The Downlink also offers facts worth sharing, like this one. The total cost of NASA's Perseverance Mars rover mission, now on its way to the Red Planet, is what Americans spend on their pets every 10 days. And Perseverance is doing just fine after a couple of minor hiccups as it races along, accompanied by the UAE's Hope and China's Tianwen-1. Japan's Hayabusa 2 won't be done when it drops off samples from asteroid Ryugu in December. The JAXA Space Agency will redirect the probe to one of two asteroids. And here's some kind of record. The latest of Russia's Progress cargo delivery ships reached the ISS just over three hours after its launch. Top that, Amazon. All this and more comes your way every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Did you catch Garrett Reisman when we talked with him in May, a few days before the launch of Demo Mission 2? Garrett lived on the International Space Station for four months in 2008 and then returned to space on space shuttle Atlantis in 2010, making two spacewalks. He's now a professor of astronautical engineering at the University of Southern California, but during nine years at SpaceX, he rose quickly to director of space operations with responsibility for all Dragon spacecraft, whether they were carrying cargo or preparing to carry men and women. The job included development of mission control center operations, staffing, training, human control interfaces in the capsule, and life support. So do you think he would have missed Sunday's splashdown? Less than 24 hours later, Garrett rejoined me for this brief, celebratory, and very illuminating conversation. You'll hear him mention Super Dracos. Those are the small but powerful rocket engines that are integrated with the Dragon capsule and were used to decelerate it from orbit. Garrett, welcome back, and congratulations. 
Thanks, Matt. I'm still I'm still smiling from from yesterday. So I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have every right. Uh, where were you when this new endeavor returned to Earth on Sunday? I was up at our, our place up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, we had the family up here for a summer, summer vacation. And I was doing the broadcast for Discovery Channel and Science Channel. Oh. And so I was watching it live on a big monitor that they sent me and uh, providing commentary along with Leland Melvin, uh, Mike Messamino, and a couple other experts. So it was uh, it, it was great to watch, but it was also I had a job to do. And, and, and I, in a way, I kind of welcomed that because it was a welcome distraction. Otherwise, I think I would have been a total nervous wreck and not just mostly a nervous wreck. Three of our favorite astronauts, but you're the one of those three who had the closest ties to this. I hate asking this question, but I don't see any way around it this time. How did it feel, first of all, to see the mission completed so successfully? And uh, and was it <laughs> was it white knuckle time as uh, as you saw that capsule returning to Earth? When, you know, one by one, there there is a sequence of events and each one of them were, were things that caused for concern or trepidation on my behalf. So so the first was separation of the trunk. That's a very critical thing. When I was up on the space station, my commander, Peggy Whitson, uh, and Yuri Malenchenko and Soyuz Lee came back and they had a failed separation event. Uh, the Soyuz does something very similar and theirs failed. And, and that was a very hazardous thing. They, they were lucky to, that uh, it, it had a happy ending. So I was nervous about that. And then, and then of course, you have the deorbit burn and then you have to close a nose cone. And then the then you have to uh, go through entry and uh, the aerothermal regime, you know, the heating and also the aerodynamic forces on a craft. This is the first time we brought humans back in a capsule that wasn't axisymmetric. And what I mean by that is if you spin it about one axis like a top, all other capsules, think about a, a, an Apollo capsule, Mercury, Gemini. Uh, if you spun it, as it goes round and round, it would look exactly the same. But Dragon yeah. doesn't do that. It's not actually symmetric. It has those bump outs for the pods for the Super Dracos. Uh-huh. That complicates things. It complicates the the flow field around it. And, and it makes it harder to predict exactly what's going to happen. So we did tons of homework. And, you know, we tried it on Demo 1. But still, that was a cause for some white knuckle moments. And once that all went well, then you got to get the parachutes out, right? You got to go through <laughs> those six minutes where you're in the dark. And then the parachutes got to come out. And you got to get the droves and the mains. And then you still have to splash down and make sure that the, th- the thing doesn't get damaged when it hits the water at 15 miles an hour. Uh. And then you got to get it on the boat. And uh, so, you know, one by one, everything went as good as it possibly could have gone. And so I started feeling better and better and better. And then by the time they got Bob and Doug out of the hatch, then it, I was pretty elated. But yeah, it was, uh, <sighs> it was a, 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 a roller coaster ride <laughs> for me too. It's the level of elation that I felt as well. And I'm not nearly as closely allied to what just took place as you are. But I think there are probably millions of us across the country who were feeling that tension and that relief and that thrill when it did splash down and suddenly was surrounded by boats or very soon after was surrounded unexpectedly by, uh, by, well, we can hope that they were well-wishers. I'll tell you the most nervous moments for me I mean, they always have been. Where that period during the blackout, when all that plasma is just preventing communication, but then also the, when the drogue shoots came out, and that was, it was so thrilling to be able to watch those pop up out of this uh, capsule as it descended. It was just spectacular video. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of us were 
kind of thinking about uh, you know the scene in Apollo 13 when they're trying to they're all anxiously waiting for the the blackout period to end and then and then you see the parachutes they cut to the parachutes coming out right and and it was yeah. just like that except the music was missing we we needed to score it better <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we had some really dramatic music when those parachutes it would have been even better but uh, I'll take it and and you mentioned the boats and I got to say that was I was really disappointed to see that that was very irresponsible not only because they could have been hurt uh, because there's lots of toxic, um, there's hydrazine on that, on that dragon. Yeah. Yeah. And if there was a, a major leak or something, they would be, you know, they could potentially be severely hurt, but m- more than that, uh, that's putting themselves in danger. If, if there needed to be, if there was an emergency and we needed to get Bob and Doug out in the water and have, and couldn't wait to get them onto the boat, if there was a medical emergency or something was going wrong with the, with the capsule, if it was damaged on entry, if it was sinking or something, we had to get them out. So all those things that we that fortunately we did not have to contend with yesterday and hopefully we never have to contend with. But if we did and they interfered with the professionals that are trying to help the crew, I would be irate at those people. Look, SpaceX and NASA and uh, the Coast Guard have all addressed this issue in the past 24 hours. I think we'll see uh, a much better uh, security uh, provisions next time. And hopefully this won't happen again. I'm sure of it. All right, so there's one lesson that has already been learned, but uh, would you say that there are other lessons from the entire Crew Dragon experience and how SpaceX approached this uh, for developers of, of future crewed spacecraft? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the debriefs once once uh, there's a chance to really fully analyze the mission and, and Bob and Doug have a chance to give their, their debrief and see what their top recommendations are. Uh, so we will definitely learn a lot from this test flight, uh, not only from the comments of the crew, but also just from the, all the, the, the wealth of data that we got back from the vehicle itself. And the great thing about SpaceX is they're, they're super good at looking at all that and not only trying to see where there might be signs of something, precursors or signs that, hey, this is something that needs to be, uh, that's not going as it should, but also just looking for ways that we can make it better. SpaceX is really good at, at, at believing in continuously improving things, making things better, making things safer, learning and, and improving. And, and so all, all that will happen. But if you take a bigger picture and just say, hey, what's the biggest lesson that we take out of this whole experience? The biggest lesson is that this public-private partnership model works. I think that any doubt, once Bob and Doug stepped out onto the, onto the deck of that ship, any doubt remaining hmm. as to whether or not this model is appropriate I think is finally gone. And that's a big thing because uh, like 10 years ago, that was far from a foregone conclusion. Oh, yeah. And there are many, many, many people who thought that, that frankly, this was a mistake. When I tweeted out my congratulations yesterday, I included in that Lori Garver, former deputy administrator of NASA, and all the other folks at NASA who took a lot of flack beginning 10 years ago uh, because they believed in this, uh, in this program. And, uh, have a right to be uh, as proud of it, maybe almost as proud as, as you and the folks at SpaceX, I would think. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, those early proponents, uh, I, would, I would say, you know, got people like Lori, absolutely, Phil McAllister, who's been, you know, uh, at this uh, uh, tenaciously from the beginning, uh, Alan Lindemoyer, who, who really, because if it weren't for the success of the cargo program that he ran, hmm. uh, none of this would have happened. The cargo program was the, the demo flight, if you will, for the crew program. And if we didn't have good success during the cargo program, then then it would have been way too easy for the 
naysayers to shut down this whole approach. Um, so Alan and, and Bill Gerstenmeier, who went when he was in charge, yeah. you know, uh, stuck with it when there were plenty of people saying that we shouldn't. So there are there are a bunch of heroes at NASA, uh, 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 many of whom kind of fly under the radar and don't get the like you said, they, they, they should get just as much recognition for the success as as Elon and Gwen and, 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 and all, all the people at SpaceX who rightfully deserve, uh, you know, a lot of credit, too. But but let's not forget the people who who swam against the stream and, and made this happen. I am so glad that you've um, you've mentioned all of that and, and those individuals and, and the rest of the folks that uh, we haven't actually named. Exactly. And by the way, I got to point out, whenever I start naming names, I'm going to forget somebody deserving. Well, you know, <laughs> so, it's like so. when you accept your Academy Award, right? Right, right. <laughs> and I'm just uh, talking off the top of my head. So if, if I forgot somebody really important, uh, I apologize. So uh, it's gone from that early challenging period to now when I heard so many people over the weekend, uh, including NASA Administrator Bridenstine, who, of course, has been very supportive of this as well, who have called this the dawn of a new era in human spaceflight. Do you agree? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, for a, a number of reasons. I, so I've already talked about the importance of this, uh, of this model and what it can mean for NASA going forward to continue to use this model as we looked for Artemis uh, you know, going to the moon. And with the human landing system, that big part of Artemis is being done as a public-private partnership. So that's already underway. I think potentially, you know, this model would work really well for the Department of Defense is could be a huge beneficiary of taking uh, the same kind of approach as opposed to traditional cost plus contracts where you get, you know, your billion dollar toilet seats of, uh, <laughs> uh, that we all remember from uh, the past. But but it's, it's more than that. Uh, it's much more than that, because part of this new model means that that spacecraft, the Dragon, the, the, the Falcon 9 rocket that launched it, the boat that went out, the whole recovery team, the, uh, the, the, the boat and all the people in the fast boats and, and the helicopters, none of those assets are owned by NASA. And that's remarkable. And, and they're not operated by NASA. You know, the control room was uh, in, in, in Hawthorne. Those were all SpaceX employees. The people on the boat that did all the work for SpaceX, there were NASA people observing and, and assisting. But, but that capability now end-to-end exists. So what that means is SpaceX can now go make another Dragon, another Falcon 9, or even reuse this one and go fly people into space who are not NASA astronauts. And that's why this is really potentially the beginning of a whole new age, because now we're talking about real extension of space travel to the general population. Now, when I say general population, what I really mean are rich people. Okay, yeah. <laughs> let, me be, let me be clear about that. Your average Joe is not going to be able to pay for a ticket uh, on Dragon. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars to, to buy a ticket. Uh, but, you know, there are suborbital opportunities coming right down the pike from Blue Origin and from Virgin Galactic uh, even sooner, I think. Now, now we're talking a couple hundred thousand. So now it's getting a little bit more reasonable. In my mind, it's kind of like the, what happened in the aviation industry, in, in the airline industry. In the very beginning, uh, those first airlines they were like Ford trimotors, right? So they were yeah. like corrugated tin-sided, <laughs> you know, <laughs> held together with bailing wire and and chewing gum. And and but the only people who were able to afford to fly on the airlines were millionaires and movie stars, right? They would like, dress up in black tie to get on those things uh, to fly, like from. Burbank to Las Vegas or something, right? <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and now today we have Southwest and JetBlue, and now everybody, uh, you know, at least when there's not a pandemic going on, could just buy a ticket and go. So I think we're on that same trajectory in space, and it's just the, you know, it's a question of time. So yes, 
when I say tourism is starting uh, for the general public, it's not really the general public, it's rich people, but it, the price will come down and we'll get better at this and it'll, it'll become more economical. And I do believe that this is the beginnings of opportunities for everybody one day who wants to go to space to just buy a ticket and go. And I think that'd be great. I'm saving my pennies. In the meantime, Garrett, it's great to get inspiration from successful missions like the one we just witnessed. Uh, thank you for returning. Thank you for all your contributions to making this possible. And and again, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Seeing, um, I, I think it was Theo that came and ra- ran up to Bob on the stairs of the jet as he was landing in Houston and give him a, a come, you know, unscripted and uncontrolled mm-hmm. running and, and w- with joy and just hugging his father's legs as he was <laughs> wobbly, wobbly coming down those stairs after being up in space in two months. Seeing that is congratulations enough. I, I don't need anything more. That was, that was priceless. Astronaut, professor of astronautical engineering and former SpaceX director of space operations, Garrett Reisman. I'll be right back for some great storytelling by my old boss, Lou Friedman. Stay with us. Greetings, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. Even with everything going on in our world right now, I know that a positive future is ahead of us. Space exploration is an inherently optimistic enterprise. An active space program raises expectations and fosters collective hope. As part of the Planetary Society team, you can help kickstart the most exciting time for U.S. space exploration since the moon landings. With the upcoming election only months away, our time to act is now. You can make a gift to support our work. Visit planetary.org advocacy. Your financial contribution will help us tell the next administration and every member of Congress how the U.S. space program benefits their constituents and the world. Then you can sign the petitions to President Trump and presumptive nominee Biden and let them know that you vote for space exploration. Go to planetary.org advocacy today. Thank you. Let's change the world. Dr. Lewis Friedman is one of the co-founders of the Planetary Society and is our Emeritus Executive Director, a job he had for about three decades before handing it over to Bill Nye. He had a long career at the Jet Propulsion Lab before that, where his work included heading the lab's Mars program. Now he's written a book about some of his most fascinating and even entertaining experiences in the early years of the Society, Planetary Adventures from Moscow to Mars, is available from Page Publishing and elsewhere. We've got a link on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. The mention of Moscow in that title is key. As you'll hear in this conversation with Lou, we recorded a few days ago. Lou, I am always glad to welcome you back to Planetary Radio. You were the first guest on this program, uh, what, uh, 17 and a half years ago, I think it is now, more than that. I thought and, it was like uh, uh, 55 years ago. I think so. I think you're closer to the truth, yeah. <laughs> it feels that way anyway. Anyway, it's great to have you back and uh, and welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, as always. As I've said, we're here to talk about primarily about this new book of yours, Planetary Adventures. Before we get into other details and some of the background of the book, I, I'd love to start with just one of the, the wonderful stories that you tell uh, and then we'll get to some more later. But but first, how did you end up in a balloon floating over Lithuania 32 <laughs> years ago? Yeah, the uh, uh, that was a, a grand adventure. In fact, maybe in some sense, it's the one that uh, 
uh, tipped me off that uh, there was many there was going to be many adventures and they are worth writing about. I think you may remember, at least, uh, and certainly a longtime Planetary Society members will know that we had a Mars balloon project. Uh, it started actually at Caltech with a group of students. Bruce Murray was the prime mover on it. He organized a summer uh, study of it. Jim Burke, who was also involved with the society as our former JPL uh, engineer, uh, led the project. We really got interested in the whole concept of ballooning on Mars, which at first we thought was impossible because of the very light atmosphere. So we uh, uh, started uh, studying it with students. It turns out that our, one of our advisors, Jacques Blamont, who is the chief scientist of the French Space Agency, has been studying the ballooning uh, concept. He had actually uh, prepared a Venus balloon to fly. That was part of a Russian mission. Uh, the French and the Russians had worked on the uh, Venus balloon together, and now they were working on a Mars balloon. And so quickly, our uh, work became relevant to uh, both the French Space Agency and the uh, Russians, and we began interacting with them on studies of how a balloon would work. And the part that we could do uniquely here, and it was actually something good for the Planetary Society to organize, was the test of the idea, to actually test the concept of uh, inflating a balloon in the atmosphere and uh, uh, making some kinds of measurements. So we began conducting some uh, balloon flights as part of this, this work, and the Russians said, well, Maybe we could work out a way to uh, test it with uh, our systems here, since we're going to be flying the mission in a few years. They were planning to include a Mars balloon on their Mars mission in the late 1980s. So that's when a, another colleague of ours, Tom Heinzheimer, who's mentioned quite a bit in the book, Tom Heinzheimer is an aerospace engineer of some note here in Southern California, also uh, is a balloonist, and we went over as a... Uh, on one of our uh, trips to Russia to talk about cooperation with the Mars balloon with the Russian scientists at the Space Research Institute and with the French scientists coming from the French Space Agency. Uh, they said, well, well, could we test it here? And maybe we can work out a test procedure. Uh, and we said, well, that's kind of a remarkable idea. Uh, send us uh, what you're thinking of and we'll look into it. And that's where the idea of flying the balloon in an airfield in Lithuania, which was then, of course, part of the Soviet Union. Uh, several of us uh, went over and uh, were part of this uh, Lithuanian balloon test. The scientific purpose was we were going to use a radar instrument on the balloon to make measurements over the ground. But to be honest with you, that was a bit of a cover to uh, uh, justify <laughs> the whole reason for doing this adventure, which we knew would get a lot of publicity. It certainly raised a lot of interest uh, among Planetary Society members. I can tell you that in the early 80s, this was our largest fundraiser. We had great member support. You actually went up in this balloon, and it, it kind of got away from your ground crew and, and came down in a field. you got to tell this story because I, I suggested you tell it to our staff, my colleagues at the Society, the, the other day, and they were as entertained as I was. Well, the real balloonist, as I mentioned, was Tom Heinzheimer, and so he was uh, uh, directing a lot of this. There was like uh, seven of us uh, from the United States over there 
I think there were a couple of uh, French participants, but, and then, of course, a large group from Russia, and then, of course, the local group in Lithuania who had made all the arrangements. And the place we were using was an airfield, a, actually part of the Soviet military. It wasn't you know, a defense establishment so much, but it was an airfield uh, that belonged to the Soviet Defense Department. And we were given instructions, don't leave the perimeter of the uh, of the base in any way. We had to confine all of our flights to be over the area of the uh, runway. And so after a number of test flights in which people who were pretty experienced at ballooning went up and we checked out all the equipment and everything, finally uh, Tom said, uh, we got one flight left to do for the day. It'll be you and me and then Slava Lincoln, who was the uh, principal contact on the Russian side, the uh, scientist at the uh, Space Research Institute, who was in charge of the uh, uh, the whole program there on Mars landers, and Viktor Krasanovich, who also working in his department and was the actual man who made most of the arrangements for the logistics of the trip. So the four of us got into the gondola, and I my job was basically in addition to doing videotaping, was I was also helping to hold this large antenna over the side to uh, allow them to make measurements as we were going over the base. But as soon as we got uh, airborne, uh, Tom started yelling, pull the antenna in, pull the antenna in. And I said, well, what's the rush? What's the rush? He said, pull it in quickly. So I, uh, I immediately pulled it in, and I realized the rush was that we were headed over the fence at the end of the perimeter of the uh, of the airfield and uh, the trucks on the ground that were following us there they were honking their horns wildly because uh, they saw where we were headed and we were going to go over the uh, the boundary tom and victor were laughing because they had already planned it slava and i knew nothing about this plan otherwise we would have never allowed such a thing to happen and uh, and sure enough, we went over the uh, boundaries of the airfield across a river, and then we immediately found a, a flat spot and descended. Well, the virtue of that being across the river was that there was no way for the trucks to get to us. They had to drive a half an hour uh, down a long a windy road to a bridge and then drive over the bridge and then drive a half an hour back. So we knew we had a good hour, hour and a half before anybody was going to come, quote, rescue us. <laughs> so we, uh, turns out there was nothing in the field except a cow and uh, tethered <laughs> on a uh, post. And as soon as we landed, a uh, old woman walking down the lane, I say old, she was probably younger than I am now, but she was walking down this uh, dirt path nearby and looking at us. And she had a young boy, about nine years old, was excited and came running over. And I, So I told Victor and Tom, I said, I'm going to go over and talk to her, explain who we are. I spoke a little Russian. I thought I could I could do this. You guys pack up the balloon because they have to get the balloon packed and get all the envelope into the gondola and get everything stowed properly. And I explained in my wonderful Russian capability, because I really speak Russian well, that we were a group of scientists working uh, jointly with the Russian Space Agency. We were from America. We and we're working on going to Mars missions, and we want to use this balloon idea to to fly on Mars. So uh, she just nodded, and she took the boy by the hand, and they walked away. And, and I said, yeah, I told him what's going on. And then the boy came running back and motioned us to uh, follow him. His uh, grandmother, who as it turned out, 
lived in a little one-room cabin or as a house. It was her house, actually. She was going to feed us and give us something to drink while we were waiting, and we could go in. So we went into this uh, small room, and she was really nice. She gave us milk. She had just gotten <laughs> from the cow, and she quickly boiled some potatoes. And we were sitting there eating and drinking, and you know, and now we were talking a little bit in Russian. And finally, Victor comes over to me, and he says, what did you tell her? Well, I explained who we were and why we were working together. Oh, because she thought you said that we had just come from Mars uh, and landed and were visiting Earth. And, <laughs> and so I guess my Russian really wasn't so good. And, uh, yeah, I suppose and Anyhow, that was a source of, then, of course, when the chase team caught up to us, they had to retell a story and we all had a lot of laughs about that. Listen, that funny story may have kept you out of a Soviet prison for violating the uh, the rules that day. Well, it turned out that, as everything else in the Soviet Union at the time that we were learning, is that there are rules, and then there are people who don't really observe them. And no one was really very <laughs> concerned about it. It was It was fine. Just one of the great stories. And you mentioned some of the great characters uh, that are also sprinkled throughout this book. Jim Burke, who I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with. You dedicate the book to your, your longtime friend and colleague, Slava Lincoln. And he does come up throughout the book as well. Why did you dedicate it to him? Slava was very special. When I first met him, uh, by the way, I should mention, uh, the whole idea of uh, working with the Russians was very controversial at the time. It was in the 1980s. Uh, the Cold War was raging. Reagan was our president, and Dropov was their president. The Soviets had just shot down in a Korean airline with American mm -hmm. citizens, in fact, an American congressman on board. Uh, Reagan gave a speech calling him the evil empire boycotting uh, Russian airspace with our uh, aviation, and drop-off gave an equally cantankerous speech. It was, it was a very tense time. But the whole notion of international cooperation on space missions was driven by two major factors for the Planetary Society. The first was we were doing nothing in the United States on space. We, our administration, the incoming Reagan administration, had said they were canceling planetary exploration. They were going to do no missions. In addition, we had no pl uh, plans for developing any kinds of Mars follow-ons to Viking, and all the action was going on in the Soviet Union. They were doing Venus missions. They were doing Mars missions. They were doing missions to Halley's Comet, which we had tried to get at JPL, but again, U.S. program rejected. And the Russians were even building a space station, which the United States was not doing. So all the action was over there, quite a difference from today. And so it was in part to keep our planetary science community doing interesting things that we wanted to cooperate, and in part because the whole notion of international cooperation was a segue toward more American participation in planetary missions. And so we had both a planetary goal and an international cooperation goal working together. Roald Sagdeyev, who was the director of the Space Research Institute, he was a friend of Carl Sagan's, and through uh, Carl and a meeting that we had, uh, he invited me to uh, come over to Russia and meet people at his institute. And one of the first persons I met was Slava Lincoln. Rolled said, meet this guy. He's working on Mars balloons. He's working on Mars missions. You'll be very interested. Well, I wrote down in my journal, I, I kept a little journal at the time. I said, 
that's strange. He wants me to meet this guy. He must be KGB. And, uh, <laughs> and then I hear, find out two years later that Slava, after he met me, went up to his office and met with his uh, colleague, Victor, and said, this guy Friedman, he's not with NASA. He must be some kind of CIA person. Of course, and, yeah. <laughs> so we each had this kind of initial suspicion about why, why are we be set up to meet each other? But it turned out that he's a really wonderful guy, and he uh, he invited me to his home for dinner. I met his wife, and we had several dinners over the course of the early visits uh, at his home. Uh, we became uh, close friends, and over the years, close to the point where I took my wife on a trip, which is also described in the book, uh, a later trip that had to do with uh, uh, another ballooning expedition, actually. But we just did a camping trip with our friends now, Slava and Nina Lincoln, drove around Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, camping and staying at their summer dacha. We did that camping trip. They came over to our house and stayed with us here in California and did a camping trip uh, with us in California. So we became the closest of friends and uh, worked many times. And over the years, Planetary Society members got to know him very well, worked on the Mars balloon, of course. We worked on the rover, rover testing, uh, worked on other uh, missions of cooperation. And it was Slava who actually first proposed that the Planetary Society get involved with the solar sail flight, uh, which led, of course, to the solar sail work, which continues today as well. So uh, Slava uh, played an important, a very important part in the development of the Planetary Society and, and our projects. And we're going to come back to some of these things you've talked about, including those early solar sail uh, attempts, uh, the flight or attempted flight of Cosmos 1. Uh, and I'm going to look up the show. I didn't think to do it before this, but there is the, at least one episode in which uh, Slava Lincoln uh, was my guest on Planetary Radio. And we'll put a link to that show and other relevant stuff on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. Sadly, uh, uh, Slava uh, passed away uh, a little more than a year ago. Yeah. It was a great loss to us. Uh, we remain friends, of course, with Nina and try to talk to her uh, from time to time to keep up. And But it was very appropriate to dedicate the book to him. Two other people that we lost, your co-founders, your partners in beginning the Planetary Society, Bruce Murray and Carl Sagan. You talked about that this was one of the reasons the three of you started this society to to build this bridge across what was still a, a, a raging cold war. I know you were committed to this. Was this also something that they felt strongly about? Well, it's a, in a way, it's a reverse. I can remember when we started the Planetary Society, of course, our goal was to create and advance public interest and support for planetary exploration here in the United States. And that was our immediate focus. Our first uh, uh, activities were SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which was then a NASA program, and Mars ballooning, and uh, Search for Extrasolar Planets at, uh, at Allegheny Observatory way back in the early 1980s. So it was focused very much in the United States, but it was in those early years Carl and Bruce, in particular, began talking about international cooperation. And I must say, can't express my admiration and my good fortune of having worked with them because they always had an idea that I didn't initially get. And then as soon as we talked for five minutes, I got it and they were right. Mm. <laughs> and uh, 
the importance of international cooperation and the development of this was something they they helped spearhead. It was Carl's initial contact with Raoul Sagdeev and uh, uh, Bruce's with Jacques Blamont and the French Space Agency uh, that brought about the first project we talked about, but many others as well. And so, yeah, they were they were great supporters of this, and uh, and that became a dominant theme. So much so that in the late 1980s, uh, we began playing a role that uh, turned out to reach even the level of attention of the president and Congress in both countries, advocating a joint U.S.-Soviet human exploration of Mars Hmm. as a way of bringing the countries together. It was, uh, I I would say, the international aspects and the geopolitical aspects of, of space science and planetary exploration were very important to the society. And frankly, in my opinion, it's a justification for planetary missions beyond the science. Science alone is not enough to spend hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars uh, on space. It's It really is its geopolitical significance. And this is something you address also uh, fairly late in the book. Was that effort uh, what came to be called Together to Mars, uh, working collaboratively to, to get to the Red Planet? Yes, that, that was a very big part of it. I give a lot of credit. In the uh, early 1990s, we had a change of administration, of course. Dan Golden came to NASA, and he was both a Mars advocate, which was very different than the people who had been before him. Uh, He was trying to restore the Mars program, and in fact, he boosted it. Another terrific shout-out to a very important person was Wes Huntress, who uh, was the head of space science at NASA and actually conceived the Together to Mars program with Dan to bring uh, Russians and Americans together working on these missions. And uh, uh, Wes, when he retired from NASA, a few years later became president of the Planetary Society, I'm glad to say. So I I think, uh, again, it was a great connection and a great common theme of our uh, 80s and 90s and and into the early 2000s was uh, these international cooperation projects uh, that advanced uh, many goals and certainly had the goal of Mars exploration behind it. The Russian space program collapsed after the end of the Soviet Union. They had very little money for their own missions. They lost a mission, the Mars 96 mission that was planned, but they had uh, good science working on good missions and they, they were invited to participate in the NASA's uh, 1998 missions and then, of course, we lost uh, that mission. Uh, that mission crashed the Mars Polar Lander with the uh, with two Russian instruments on board and with the Planetary Society Mars microphone on board. So yeah. uh, we've had our ups and downs in all of these international activities, but they have a common thread that they're moving forward in time, uh, greater and greater ambitions. And, of course, the joys of exploration always bring a good result. You bet. Let me take you back to another experience uh, that you talk about in the book, another project of the Planetary Society, one of these collaborative ones. By the time listeners hear this, a fifth rover should be on its way to Mars. But a lot of people may not know that some of the earliest research that got us to this point was conducted by the Planetary Society and and its partners. You, You mentioned briefly a little bit about this early, early rover work 
And I hope you can expand on that. I know it was work that took you to, if not the ends of the earth, then not far from those ends. I'm thinking of, <laughs> was it Siberia? And I, and I know Death Valley because uh, it was a little before my time, but I know people who were on that trip in addition to you. Yeah, I did. The, uh, it's hard to believe this, but in fact, I was reminiscing with a colleague of mine from JPL just last night. We were laughing about this because in the early 1990s, the planetary science community hated the idea of putting rovers on Mars. <laughs> they said it is a stupid... I was at a meeting of, of all the leading scientists, and this was the unanimous conclusion, if you can believe this. <sighs> it's just stupid to put a rover on Mars. That's a stunt. All it's going to do is move around and aimlessly, and it <laughs> takes up valuable payload space that we could be using for science instruments. That's and as dumb as were... putting cameras on Mars. <laughs> yeah. So they were they were like a really opposed. And uh, there was a few people, mostly engineers, who said, you're missing the point. This isn't about your science instrument, Mr. Scientist. This is about exploration. This is about discovering new things. And Bruce Murray was, of course, a leader in that thinking, uh, as was Carl. And uh, Wes Huntress was a leader in that thinking. A woman at JPL who was head of the Mars program at the time, uh, Donna Shirley, uh, who became Donna Pivarotto. She, she understood it right away, and she ended up being the one who got Pathfinder to uh, be included in the American uh, uh, NASA first mission the on the sojourner rover on the pathfinder mission yeah and what we were doing to promote this was testing russian rovers first in russia uh working with our colleagues over there we went not to siberia as you said but to kamchatka mm, where okay. they have volcanic region to test rovers while we were there we said, well, this is a huge success. Why don't you come to America and we'll test it in Death Valley? And they said, okay, okay we'll plan to spend the whole summer. And I said, no, 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 we're not going to spend the whole summer in Death Valley. <laughs> we're going to do this in two weeks. And I'll never forget this question. They said, no, no, no. When we plan a rover expedition, we have to uh, allow for a lot of contingencies, weather and, and logistics and everything. What if it rains? <laughs> Don't worry. Not going to rain. Yeah. <laughs> rain is not an issue. And logistics is not an issue. It's only a six-hour drive from L.A. Uh, it's not like we have to take all this stuff across the country like you do here. So we arranged a two-week trip to, uh, to Death Valley uh, for Mars rover testing. And the result of that trip was we got, of course, enormous publicity and enormous attention, not just with our membership, but in news media. It got the attention of Dan Golden, the new administrator at NASA. He, on a trip out to JPL, asked us uh, if we could uh, show him this Marzacod, which we still had in Pasadena. Well, JPL wasn't interested. They weren't going to invite us up there, but uh, we went and rented an area near the Rose Bowl and did a rover test down there with uh, and uh, then, of course, when NASA got interested, JPL got interested, and the rest is history. We we did finally succeed in convincing the science community that rovers should be on Mars missions, and they were in Pathfinder and Sojourner, and then in Spirit and Opportunity, Curiosity, and now Perseverance. And, uh, not just the United States. Sadly, in a way, the Russian Marzakad never got there, of course, mm. the end of the Soviet Union ended their effort, 
Uh, but it lives on, actually. The Chinese rover that's going to be launched tomorrow, by the way, as yeah, we speak, as we speak. Uh, mm-hmm. is a derivative of the, uh, of the Russian rover. And the ESA, Mars mission that was postponed from this year to 2022, also includes uh, Russian landing systems. So Russians are still involved, but they're doing it cooperatively with Europe and China. It's a great story, one of many in this book. Um, It wasn't all camping out in difficult conditions. How did you end up helping to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Sputnik 1 launch? Well, as I mentioned, uh, the principal uh, organizer uh, of all of this, and and a man who anticipated perestroika and the changes ending the Soviet Union before they happened was Roald Sagdaev, who also, by the way, became years and years later in the late 90s, a member of the board of the Planetary Society. Sagdeev was always thinking ahead, and we had w- developed a very strong working relationship at the Planetary Society with a senator from Hawaii by the name of Spark Matsunaga, who was an advocate of something called the International Space Year. This was going to be in 1992-1993, and I was promoting both a pan-Pacific cooperation, but also broad international cooperation. And he organized an international space year conference in Hawaii. Sagan went, and uh, I think Bruce Murray went, I went, uh, several Russian participants, included Sagdeev, and of course, many American uh, scientists were there, all talking about the possibilities for exploring uh, Mars together. While we were there, uh, Sagdiev comes over to me and says, Lou, take a walk with me out into the uh, ocean. I want to do a little swimming. And like, could you accompany me? And I said, sure. And so we walked out together. And then we were when we were away from earshot from anybody, he says, I've done you a lot of favors over the years. I want you to do one for me. He said, I just got approval for a 30th anniversary celebration in Moscow we have an unlimited budget, basically, to pay the travel expenses, but it's only four months from now, and we want to invite lots of American participation. We want to invite all the ast- Apollo astronauts. We don't know how to do this. We've never done anything like this in, in international cooperation. It's a new day for open Soviet participation. So I said, well, sure, we can help, and we had email in those days, so we, you know, <laughs> primitive email. I should say it was a Western Union-style email, but it worked. We began sending emails to all of our colleagues and to the Apollo astronauts and many friends we had developed over the years, inviting them to uh, go uh, to Russia for this 30th anniversary celebration. And one story I tell in the book is that the Soviets chartered a, a flight, Aeroflot, big jumbo jets, And they told us all to meet at the uh, airport in Washington, D.C., and they would fly to Moscow. And then when we got to Moscow, they'd tell us what hotel we were in, and they had made all arrangements and return tickets and everything like that. But one of the Apollo astronauts, uh, actually Richard Gordon, who flew on Apollo uh, 12, he comes up to me during the flight. He says, Friedman, if anybody had ever told me that I would be on a Soviet airliner flying a one-way trip into <laughs> Russia with no idea of where I'm going or how I'm getting back, I would have punched him out. And I stood up. I said, are you going to hit me? He said, no, I'll trust you for a little while longer. <laughs> and, uh, but we did, and we ended up, that celebration was a milestone. It was remarkable by the people who did attend uh, 
both American and Russian space officials. Uh, we had visits to the Soviet uh, training site at Star City, where the astronauts trained. It was all a first-class celebration, very international cooperation, and uh, I think it was an important milestone in advancing you know, space projects. Of course, what none of us knew at the time was that it was sort of the the downslide of the Soviet Union, communism was ending, and the and their active participation in space ambitions was also going to end. Just very briefly, because you mentioned uh, email, early email, weren't you responsible uh, for sort of bringing email to uh, the Soviet Union, or at least uh, to Roald Sagdeev and, and his team, yeah. because you sent over an Apple computer? Yeah, we, uh, in, in the early 80s, we uh, began thinking of how we can help in some of these cooperative projects. American scientists and Soviet scientists, when they communicated with each other, had to do through through a very cumbersome telex procedure or international operators or just regular mail. There was no good communication. But the internet was working at the time, and uh, we had suggested email. Uh, There was a couple of groups that were working on uh, international emails. We partnered with one of them, and uh, we uh, thought we could bring computers over to uh, put in uh, the Space Research Institute in Moscow. Now, I should emphasize, especially important for your listeners to know this and, and all Planetary Society members, that everything we did was legal. We did not hmm. hack computers or steal them or sneak them in behind closed doors. When we got a computer to take to the Soviet Union, we got an export control license duly signed by the State Department and the Commerce Department. We went through all the procedures governing export control. When we set up our office in Moscow, we had a little office with computers. We observed all the procedures. And in fact, we ended up uh, over the years even talking to American officials over those communication lines because in some ways we were ahead of uh, many of the official channels. And in fact, I can tell just one story if I can divert for a minute. Sure. Uh, When the Russian Mars 96 mission failed, it was a launched uh, uh, from Baikonur, and the launch was not successful. Americans and international people who were tracking it thought that they noticed that the debris was headed for uh, Australia, and they were a lot of concern because among the uh, pieces of debris would be the plutonium in the uh, nuclear power source for the lander. Now, it was a tiny amount of plutonium. It would have fit in my pocket, but it was still radioactive material. And the chief scientist on the Russian Mars lander was my friend Slava Lincoln. Uh, After the failed launch, I called back to NASA and was giving them information that we had on the flight. And Dan Golden asked me if I had any information about this plutonium nuclear power source because American officials were very concerned about it. They knew it was going to be landing in, by that time, they knew in the Pacific Ocean and they wanted information about it. I said, well, no, I don't know much about it, Dan, but the man who was in charge of it is standing right next to me because I'm at his home in uh, <laughs> in Moscow. And I put Slava Lincoln on the phone then, and uh, he then patched in some people actually in the Pentagon, and we ended up having a three-way conversation from Moscow, giving them uh, firsthand information that uh, they found useful in understanding what was going on. 
Just another service of the Planetary Society. I'm right. <laughs> we, we, were, we were involved, and it was important. I think it's important to know that. It was one of my joys as, uh, you know, I look back on the Planetary Society, and, of course, very proud of what we achieved in creating the society. But it wasn't just creating the society, and it wasn't just creating nice science missions. Everybody's doing that now. It was creating these these forces that really, I think, had significance in personal relationships, in international relationships, and cooperative ventures, how much more you can cooperate when you, well, how much more you can achieve when you cooperate like that. Yeah. That brings up something I'll, I'll take a little bit out of order here, uh, because you mentioned this in the book. Why do you think the International Space Station deserves a Nobel Prize? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because Carl Sagan and I testified to Congress. We have a joint statement that the Planetary Society uh, board wrote, uh, and we didn't testify against the space station. We testified that we were for a space station worth the cost, and the one that was being built we didn't think was it because it didn't really advance exploration of the solar system didn't advance exploration beyond the boundaries of earth in part it was a disappointment to see that the space station really didn't advance even the capabilities for human spaceflight out of earth orbit to anywhere but what has turned out to be enormously important beyond anything we couldn't have imagined was that the international space station became a bridge between the first United States and, and the Soviet Union, but then the whole world, Europe, Russia, post-Soviet Russia. It's remarkable with 14 countries, I think, or maybe more even, that are participating in it. It's worked through the end of communism. It's worked through change of his administration. It's worked in the glory days of, of optimism and the first years of post-Soviet Russia and in the gloomy days uh, with the Putin uh, relationship that we now have, uh, it continues to work. It's been enormously important to the American program. Without the Russian human spaceflight program and the International Space Station, we would have not been able to continue our servicing of the space station when we run in, ran into our shuttle problems here. And, and remarkable what the space station has achieved in bringing not science to the world, that, that can be argued, but international and geopolitical relationships that it has forged. And for that reason, I think it does deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, you already mentioned plutonium. Uh, speaking of nuclear stuff, uh, how'd you end up spending time with Dr. Strangelove himself, Edward Teller? <laughs> we did do a, uh, this was a trip that I talk about to Chelyabinsk 70, which was then a secret Soviet facility, uh, somewhat equivalent to our Los Alamos, the place where they manufacture uh, hydrogen bombs. It's east of the Urals. And as the Soviet Union ended, uh, it was interesting. The nuclear scientists uh, there realized that their mission had ended and they considered their mission a great success. Hmm. They had built this mutually assured destruction capability and prevented a third world war. And so they were very proud of, from a nationalistic point of view, that they had basically kept peace in the world. And they felt 
optimistic about the things they could achieve, but they knew the things they were working on, namely nuclear bombs, were that program was ending. At the same time, there was an enormous amount of interest in these asteroids whose orbits come close to the Earth, potentially hazardous asteroids. And so uh, some of them and some of our nuclear scientists began proposing that the way to deflect a near-Earth asteroid that might destroy the Earth would be to nuke them, basically, to take up a nuclear bomb and, and divert them. Now, that does sound a little bit like Dr. Strangelove in some ways, and it is a dangerous idea because you basically have to have nuclear weapons at the ready, and then nuclear fallout would be dangerous even in space. But the fact is, and even today, with all the knowledge we have in the advancement of this subject, there's really no quicker way to divert an uh, incoming near-Earth object, a potentially hazardous one that would hit the Earth. If we discovered one that was going to hit the Earth in a year or two or three, that's probably the only way we could do it. And of course, if you want to study something like that, you want to do it internationally. And so an international conference was proposed. Now, ironically, it was in Chelyabinsk 70, which I say ironically because 20 years later, an asteroid did hit the Earth. In fact, yes. caused the only injury we know of to anybody on Earth was by an asteroid that came in and hit in Chelyabinsk, that city, and uh, its explosion in the atmosphere broke windows, which ended up cutting people on the street. And those are the injuries that we know of that were caused by an incoming near-Earth object. Uh, this time, that trip was secret, and so seven American planetary scientists went along with a couple of scientists from uh, Livermore Laboratory, including the famous Edward Teller, the inventor of the American hydrogen bomb. And uh, he was extraordinarily interested, of course, to have this rare opportunity, to, in fact, unique opportunity, to see the Soviet nuclear facility, which all of his life he had worked against. So I went on a trip with Edward Teller to Chelyabinsk 70 to see the Soviet nuclear facilities in Chelyabinsk 70, and it was was remarkable. The common goal was working on planetary defense. It was the beginnings of the Planetary Society involvement in the subject of planetary defense. Which uh, continues, of course, today. I, I got to take you back before we uh, finish to a day in July of 2001. I was with a very excited group in the old carriage house behind what was then the Society's Pasadena headquarters. Where were you? 2001, we had, uh, I mentioned that the uh, Russians came to us with the idea of piggybacking on their development of an inflatable reentry shield. They could build inflatable booms for a solar sail. And they would launch it on what was a converted uh, submarine-launched ICBM. And so it was a free launch. So this made the whole idea practical. And that's what led to the Cosmos One project. I need a shout out to the supporters that enabled us to do that project, not only the many members of the society, many donors, and including especially the widow of Carl Sagan, Andrian, uh, her backing and the backing of her venture at Cosmos Studios enabled us to do Cosmos One. So Anne came up to me and said, could we witness that launch? This was a test flight that uh, wasn't the launch of the Cosmos One sail. What the Russians had come up with it was an idea to test the deployment of the sails in a suborbital flight 
that would take off from a submarine launch ballistic missile, fly over the uh, Arctic into Kamchatka uh, and land there, and they would recover the payload. And if we could supply a television camera and the sail material, they would be, we would recover the film of the sail deployment. Uh, so I uh, and my colleagues who I was working with uh, uh, Planetary Society, we went down to Best Buy here in Pasadena and bought <laughs> six video cameras uh, for the mission. We took those over and we had sail material, which was donated by a company in Northern California, Orcon, and we supplied the sail material. And I said, Andrean wants to know if we can actually observe this launch. And they said, well, no, that's impossible. It's on a Navy ship. It's going to you go out into the uh, Barents Sea. Uh, the only way to observe it would be on a Russian uh, military vehicle. I said, well, can't you arrange that? <laughs> well, it turns out they did. <laughs> and uh, so I was on, on that, for that launch while you were in Pasadena, I was on a ship that was uh, steaming into the Barents Sea to observe a submarine launch ballistic missile firing uh, by the Russians. I bought a, uh, a satellite telephone so I could communicate with you all back here in Pasadena and witness the launch and, and narrate it. It was quite an exciting activity. There was a problem with that flight, and the payload was never recovered. And in fact, there was a problem with the Bolna launch vehicle. And I tell that story in the book, too, and it's not a yeah. pretty story. Basically, that ballistic missile had defects in it that were not revealed uh, until after it failed, uh, not just on that Cosmos 1 flight, uh, not just, I mean, on the uh, test flight, but on the actual flight of Cosmos 1 itself. And we actually lost that vehicle, which was the first solar sail spacecraft ever built. Uh, we lost that vehicle uh, in the Arctic as well. And yet it set us on course for LightSail, a project that you also began and, and, and ran, managed. It is a great story, one of so many wonderful stories and terrific players uh, in this book. By the way, I should mention that I think the name of the chapter that this story is told in is There's No Such Thing as a Free Launch. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's the truth. <laughs> By the way, and even in the decision, my reaction to the Cosmos 1 launch was, that's it, let's give up. We're not going to be first anymore. By that point, we knew the Japanese were building the Akaros solar sail, and we certainly weren't going to work with that same Russian launch vehicle group. But then NASA called up. They had built something called a nanosail. They had also had a failure. So NASA has failures too. It's not just Russians. And uh, <laughs> the uh, NASA failure, in fact, it wasn't not, what, not just a NASA failure. It was a SpaceX failure, the first Falcon launch carrying the nanosail failed. And they said, we have a spare spacecraft, but we have no money to develop it for another mission. Would the Planetary Society like this nanosail spare spacecraft? And I said, yes. And then the bureaucracy took over and spent about eight months trying to figure out how to do that. And they said, we can't take yes for an answer. Um, <laughs> but by that point, um, Jim Cantrell, who was working with us, and Tom Svitek, who had the company Stellar Exploration, said, well, we don't need to have that spare spacecraft. We can build our own, and we can build it better. And that's what led uh, us to build LightSail. Uh, Svitek's company, Stellar Exploration, built it. As you know, the result is wonderful. 
Uh, Andrean was a terrific supporter, helped us raise money for the initial funding of the development of LightSail. Ultimately, the final product was, uh, was given by other donations as well. And our members came in with great supporters. We have some wonderful supporters, uh, including donors who are still active with the society, uh, making LightSail uh, the success that it's been. And the rest is history, as they say. Uh, I don't know that you've slowed down very much in your years as our (laughs) emeritus executive director. So before I let you go, I hope that you can say something about at least one of your current projects, the one that you're you're working on with another longtime colleague, another Slava, Slava Turashev of of JPL and and Caltech. Yes. um, People don't believe this. They think that I'm a solar sail advocate. I'm actually not. <laughs> I I'm could have not fooled me. <laughs> I'm not a technology person. I'm a missions person. I want to make missions happen that are special. I got into solar sailing because the JPL idea was to rendezvous with Halley's Comet, which would not have been possible any other way. Yeah, project that you led. It, I, yeah, and then I got into it with um, uh, the Cosmos One because it was a chance to be the first solar sail. And now I'm into another one, the idea that we can actually go out to 550 AU and beyond and uh, image an exoplanet, and I mean high-resolution image, something we have no way of doing now, using the solar gravity lens. That is the magnification of starlight as it goes around the sun by the bending of light, an Einstein prediction, an Einstein discovery that starlight bends when it goes around, or light bends when it goes around a massive object and forms a lens. And that solar gravity lens out there at 600 plus AU could be used to actually image the surface of an exoplanet. So Slava Turyashev and I have been working on this for a number of years. He's received some NASA advanced concepts funding on it. And we now have a way of even coming up with a smaller version of it that will rendezvous with an interstellar object that is also uh, an object that flies through the solar system when it's discovered. And I'm working on a I'm working on a paper right now that uh, we plan to submit uh, this year to uh, explain that mission and hopefully develop some scientific interest in it. You mentioned NIAC. Uh, NASA Innovation Advanced Concepts, right? Yeah, which we've reported on several times on this show. In fact, you've been heard on some of those shows. This project, they obviously had some faith in it because they awarded you a very rare NIAC Phase Three grant, or awarded Slava, I should say, but you're part of the project. Yes, they got the first, uh, not the first, but they got the Phase Three grant, which is a $2 million, brings it up to a much higher level of attention, and also allows us to develop something that maybe we can fly in a few years, a technology demonstration mission to fly in the inner solar system and uh, prove the concept of small sats and solar sails for uh, deep space voyages. So the adventure continues, Lou. doesn't take me to exotic lands anymore. That's in part (laughs) because uh, you may not know this. I'm sure none of our listeners would even suspect it, but I'm getting older. And uh, and also we've had this other thing that's gotten a little bit of attention, the pandemic, which, so I'm doing all my work sitting at a desk, but then again, maybe it's a good time to be retired. I'm not affected by the COVID. I just sit at home doing what I do anyway. Well, that still leaves me regretting that we uh, hadn't had this terrific conversation sitting across from each other 
at uh, Planetary Society headquarters in Pasadena. I look forward to when we're all vaccinated and, and we can do that again, Lou, and maybe we can talk more about this uh, this NIAC project that uh, might just, <laughs> sounds like it could, with some necessary advances, give us a first close-up look at the surface of a, a promising exoplanet. Be glad to do that, Matt. We've been talking with Lou Friedman, one of the co-founders of the Planetary Society out of JPL. He ran the Mars program there, as you as you heard, he also headed an ambitious project to uh, fly a giant solar sail to Halley's Comet. Uh, he is our Emeritus Executive Director. That was a job that he had for about three decades before handing it over to Bill Nye. While he was in that job, he hired me, and he allowed me to start this little show called Planetary Radio. Thank you, Lou. Well, I will say it is one of the best decisions I ever made. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll be sure to tell Bill you said so. I'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Good to talk to you. By the way, about Lou's advocacy of a Nobel Peace Prize for the International Space Station, did you know there's a real effort underway? Hashtag Nobel for ISS. Bruce and what's up or next? Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he is here to make some waves, some gravity waves. <laughs> Black hole gravity waves. We'll get to that in a few minutes uh, when we talk about the contest that we put in front of you a couple of weeks ago. But uh, right now, what I want to say is welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. What's up there? I'm not even trying for the comet anymore. <laughs> Well, try for some meteors. We got the Perseid meteor yeah. shower peaking on August 11th and 12th <clears throat> with increased activity several days before and after. You'll get the most meteors after midnight, but it's a trade-off because that's also when a quarter moon will be up interfering with some of the meteor visibility. So just pick a good time, go up and stare at the sky <laughs> and keep those clouds away. And we uh, still have great planets to check out, whether you see a meteor or not. We've got in the evening sky, in the evening west, southwest, Jupiter, super bright, Saturn to its left, looking yellowish. And then the pre-dawn, we've got Venus, super bright over in the east. If you look to its right, you'll see Orion. And in the middle of the night, we've got Mars coming up in the east. And the moon will be joining Mars, very close to Mars, on the 9th and Venus on the 15th. On to this week in space history. 1990, the Magellan spacecraft went into orbit about Venus and started its radar mapping that would give us all sorts of new insights into Venus. Did you know it was a planetary society contest that led to the name Magellan? You know what? I did not know that. I mean, it's before my time, uh, with the society anyway. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> else is before my time. <laughs> and then something you do remember, hopefully, 2012, I can't believe it. You can't believe it was eight years ago. Curiosity landed on Mars. You're right. I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> we had a big event. It couldn't have possibly been that long ago. I was jumping up and down. Yeah, I was in the back, uh, you know, making sure your microphone stayed on. <laughs> Thank you, by the way. I've, I've meant to thank you about that for the last eight years. Speaking of microphones, the, this microphone will hear me say, Random Space Fact! And I'm still keeping your mic on. I know, I appreciate that. Talking about splashdowns, the first to successfully splash down after spaceflight 
Monkeys Abel and Baker in 1959 aboard Jupiter AM-18. And they were monkeys. This is before the chimps, right? Like ham started going in the Mercury capsule. Uh, yeah. And they, yeah. They were what? I think they were spider monkeys? Oh, now you're testing me. I know there were two different kinds of monkeys. I believe one oh. was a squirrel monkey, and I don't remember what the other one was. I apologize. Okay. Well, I am we'll, so we'll go ashamed. With, <laughs> we'll go with squirrel and spider. What the heck? I'm sure we're going to hear from somebody who corrects us. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's no way we could figure it out. So we move on instead <laughs> to the trivia contest. I I went deep into, uh, into a black rel- hole. relativity in black holes. <laughs> Good old Carl Schwarzschild solved the Einstein field equations for the geometry of empty space-time around a non-rotating, uncharged, axially symmetric black hole with a quasi-spherical event horizon. <sighs> I asked you who first solved those equations for these same conditions, except for a rotating black hole and note same conditions would have implied uncharged with all of that insanity. How did we do Matt? I'm just so shocked to say that uh, the number of entrants was somewhat depressed this time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like fewer entries or just thinking about this stuff made people depressed? I think some of them, most of them were depressed, which black holes tend to do that to me as well. Uh, but, <laughs> but yes, the numbers as well, not a bit surprising. So kudos to those of you who made it through. You know, there were actually, I think it's safe to say more than I might have expected for a question like this. I'll get to our winner in a moment, but we have two poems, one from Gene Lewin up in the state of Washington. We'll open with that. A Kiwi mathematician back in 63 exacted a solution for relativity, proving black holes rotate before Naria 1 was found. Nonlinear equations proved his calculations sound, describing the geometry of this empty space-time, expounding on the formula of the eminent Einstein. Professor Emeritus Roy Kerr of Canterbury U, also quite adept at bridge of metrics, he bids too. <laughs> I'm not a bridge wow. player, but I kind of get it. That was impressive. And I, I had read that he was quite the competitive bridge player. We're talking about this guy from New Zealand, right? Roy Kerr. Roy Kerr of the uh, Kerr metric, the Kerr geometry, the Kerr bridge player. <laughs> tell me more, Matt. Well, I can tell you that uh, uh, we also heard from a whole bunch of people, including Dustin Flaum of uh, Virginia, about the Reisner Nordstrom metric, which uh, involved four other researchers. But that's not what we were looking for because apparently that was for a charged black hole. Indeed. Indeed. You got to solve your different equations if you're going to charge up your black hole. Really? Come on, people. <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking? Uh, Darren Ritchie, in the, also from the state of Washington, uh, Kerr, as we said, hailed from New Zealand. So perhaps the event horizons of the, these objects could be described as their kiwitical radius. I'm here all week, <laughs> he says. Try the lamb. <laughs> one more poem from our poet laureate dave fairchild gravity waves are what ligo detects and in 2016 they declared we noted a merger of black holes at last and both of them must have been curs but what is a cur i can hear you exclaim their name for the man who uncovered the solving of how a rotating black hole's geometry must be discovered Wow. These these poems were impressive. I know, really. I mean, when you consider the topic. (laughs) 
That's what I really meant. That's wow. Yeah. I never did mention the winner. You know, you should probably do that. We have a we have a long-standing tradition of having a winner. <laughs> Congratulations to Curtis Franks in the state of Ohio. Uh, Curtis, first-time winner as far as I can tell. You, Curtis, are going to get your choice. Either the Planetary Society 40th anniversary t-shirt that shows all those different objects around our solar neighborhood, where they were at the time the society was created, or the equally cool vintage Planetary Society t-shirt with our original Clipper Ship logo, brought back by a Chop Shop store uh, on our behalf. That, that's where the Planetary Society store is. You can also get there from planetary.org slash store. A whole bunch of other cool stuff, too. So congrats again, Curtis. How about a different question that does not involve general relativity? What was the only unintended splashdown of a spacecraft carrying humans? And I don't just mean it landed a, a few kilometers away from where they intended. I mean, unintended splashdown of a spacecraft carrying humans. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Wow. Good one. All right. You have until the 12th to answer this good one. That would be Wednesday, August 12th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And we'll keep it up. We'll go with uh, the same prize choice once again, either the 40th anniversary t-shirt or the t-shirt featuring our original Clipper Ship logo, which was uh, co-created by Carl Sagan, one of our three founders. And that's it. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and ponder whether miniature golf courses use miniature black holes at the last hole to take your ball away from you. <laughs> Thank you, and good night. Did I ever tell you about my idea? I tried to you know, sell to one of those uh, companies that advertises late-night television. It's the, no. the Singularity Toilet. It, it needs no <laughs> sewage connection, uh, and uh, you don't want to use a plunger. That'd be very dangerous, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's genius, uh, genius. He's Bruce Betts. Obviously, takes one to know one, uh, and he is our <laughs> chief scientist at the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for what's up. The Singularity Toilet, patent pending. Did I mention that it the energy it generates also gets you off the grid? Actually, it gets your entire continent off the grid. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California and is made possible by its proud members, some of whom have been with us from the start. It's never too late to join them at planetary.org membership. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro. 